I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. This is Cultivating the Empty Field Session 2021, Day 2, a talk entitled Desires, Death and Devotion. So sometimes we call what we're doing here Dharma practice. Dharma meaning true reality in accord with universal principle. Practicing seeing and being truth. Seeing and being reality. Seeing and being the laws of the universe. And sometimes we call what we're doing here spiritual practice. Practicing that which breathes life into infusing our life with life, being animated by the essential. You could say, exhaling what no longer nourishes, our letting go and offering. Can you find your desire, your motivation, your why do this in any of that? Seeing, being, truth, reality, universe, breathing life into your life, being animated by something beyond the self? Does it resonate your motivation to exhale what no longer nourishes, to let go, weakening self-centeredness as a means to clarify and vitalize the world? Sometimes we say the purpose of practice is to be aware to wake up, to forget the self, to save all beings. Sometimes we say the purpose of practice is to end suffering. What suffering would you love to end? What are you doing that you would like to stop doing in regards to that suffering? It's vital as we navigate this realm of session that we stay in contact with our motivation. Stay in contact with our desire. Stay in contact with what we want from this. So sometimes people feel that is a self-centered question or they're not supposed to think about that. They're supposed to have the standard responses. I want to become enlightened, I want to become compassionate, whatever it may be. But what is your motivation? What is your desire? What is really, what has really brought you to this place? It's vital to stay in contact with that. A practice that actually changes us that actually changes how we see, a practice that changes how we be requires effort. It requires sustained and specific efforts. It's an ongoing outputting of energy. It's an ongoing outputting of energy. I don't know if any of you played with one of those little 
supermarket toys, by the way, remember supermarket toys and how compelling those were? Well, there was one that was a plastic pipe that came with the ball and you blew in the tube and the ball would just hover there. And if you blew too hard, the ball rolled down the aisle and you threw away your mom's three bucks. But if you didn't blow hard enough, it fell on the ground. But anyway, to keep that afloat, you had to continually breathe in that tube just the right amount or you drop the ball. This requires an ongoing outputting of energy. Do we need to be perfect? No. Is that possible? No. A practice that actually changes us takes heart. It takes heart. You have to put your heart into it to get heart out of it. You have to put your heart into it. This cannot be mechanical. The alchemists called this the great work. The great work. The fruits are great, and so the demand is great. Heart. So, in session, out of session, own your desire or desires for practice and maintain contact with that. Maintain contact with that. Have a practice of maintaining contact with that. Some people at certain times in their practice, their life are just on fire. It's not even a choice. But even that kind of passion comes in waves. It crests and recedes. We have some um, gesture of turning towards and keeping lit that fire in ourselves. You may have different access points. They could be cognitive. Could be this just makes sense when you think about your life, when you think about what life is and how you would like to manage life that you desire to practice because it makes sense, it helps. You may access this intuitively. You don't know why you practice in your head, but you know it in your body. You know it was something other than your thoughts, which of course can be swayed. Contact with this motivation may be most clear when the mind is clear. And that presents a particular conundrum because the fruit of motivated practice is a source of motivation to practice. The more clear you are, the more clear about what matters to you. And if Dharma matters to you, the more clear you become. It feeds on itself. But that's tricky because we get disconnected from that clarity. So putting heart into it, heart flows out of it.
So connect again and again with your strongest why I'm doing this. Really allow yourself to think about that, to reflect on that. Especially when you hit times when your motivation is low or you feel like you want to give up or everything in between. Some people say, well, I have no purpose to my practice. I practice just to practice. And it may be true, or it may be a way of not owning what's really in there. There is an intimate time of being beyond motivation. There is a way of presence for presence's sake. Dogen Zenji is famous for saying, don't practice the Dharma to benefit yourself and don't even practice it to think that you're going to benefit others. Practice the Dharma for the sake of the Dharma. Well, that's not set in stone. This heart that beats you is the Dharma. What is it, what is it beating for? So our motivation to practice, when we really break it down and peel the layers off the onion, I believe what we find is trustworthy. I believe that what is calling us at this time is something to dive into, to really follow that thread. It's trustworthy, and yet it's trustworthy and it's temporary. Because as we change, the path changes. What we think the path is changes. As we change and the path changes, our motivation to practice changes. And that could happen in the span of one day, or one decade. So when you say the four Bodhisattva vows after a talk or any of the other chants, try to feel them. Try to connect with the passion that is, is to some degree in you and is coming through those chants. Interpret, listen for yourself in all of these, of all of these words. In the traditions, and I really can only speak to some extent for Buddhism, in the traditions, human beings are viewed as being pretty fickle. That we kind of wander around life, chasing this, being chased by that. Our chosen Roshi has a nice modern metaphor of the pinball. And without practice, without some clarity of what we desire, we're just like a pinball knocked about. Sometimes it seems like things go down the gutter. Then there's another chance. We're bounced around some more. Beat that pinball metaphor to death. So human beings are viewed as being pretty fickle, or to put it more nicely, really complex. We're really complicated. Everyone is contradictory. We contain contradiction. There may be a deep desire for spiritual freedom, yet that 
coexists with all the other needs. The desire for awakening, or whatever it is, is often competing for attention with being seen, being loved, being safe, being successful. It's hard to knock those. Those are a matter of life and death in a way, right? Being safe, being seen, being loved. But the Dharma is a matter of life or death too, but a different kind of life and a different kind of death. So all these needs that we have, all the desires that compete with our desire for awakening or fill in the blank, when are they finally fulfilled? Can they be satisfied? Do you ever feel like you've been loved enough and you're cool, you can take a few years off? Do you ever feel like you're safe enough and you can totally relax and never have to worry about somebody doing whatever? doesn't seem to work that way. So the desire for awakening competes with desires that at least while we're cultivating our foundation in practice are hard to fulfill alongside this primary devotion. And it's not that we're bad or unholy humans. We live in a beautiful and interesting world filled with beautiful and interesting people and things. And so we look out and we see many things worth doing, many things call to our attention. We have our social and our survival demands. Outside of retreat, the silent period of meditation has to compete with Scarlett Johansson. It's tough. It has to compete with the attention that mother-in-laws demand and rent and that extra hour of sleep. And we each have our version of that. So this is why we come together for a practice like Sishin. We come together and we create this vessel where we can pour out, be filled by this deepest desire. This deepest desire. There is enough safety, enough support, enough love in the community, in the container that what may be submerged can arise more fully. So let me emphasize that we co-create the vessel, the vessel of practice. Each of us, by coming here, has responsibility to keep this vessel alive, to make our best effort, to keep the guidelines. And we're contributing energy, and that energy contributes to us. There's a synergy here in this practice. I hadn't been in this zendo for something like four months, and as soon as I came in, I felt that energy. I felt that field that we make together. And I believe it's felt at home, and what's happening at home with our Zoom participants flows into here. That field is not limited by distance. So we make this structure, this vessel, that invites and holds and heats up our spiritual aspirations, 
kind of put fire under those because that's what we're doing here and that's what's emphasized. We're amplifying that part of us. Probably it's always been the case, but maybe even more so in the modern times, this situation that all the time desires that are actually mild are not even existence in us, or maybe just in potential in us, are flared up by the advertising geniuses and their machines. All the time desires that really aren't rooted in what we most care about are sparked by the machine. Of course, something in us must keep that machine going, so it's not like we can blame some externals. All the manufactured wants. If you notice your mind in session, especially when you hit a hard patch, Maybe you can notice that you have inspiration and you practice for a while with some kind of diligence and then when you hit the hard patch and your motivation wanes, the mind manufactures other wants or it reminds you of all the things you could want. Things that are a lot easier and that you'll get a badge for. So wants are manufactured internally and externally. So in session, We hope our deepest desires, the universal longings of the heart for the ultimately meaningful, for the ultimately meaningful, for being unbound are highlighted and excited through various means. We want to heat them up. One means is through the four thoughts that turn the mind. And this is a classic contemplation found in various expressions throughout Buddhism and other traditions. And just a temporary aside, we may be able to receive these with an open mind. It's not rare for a teaching to activate the part of us that doesn't want to be taught. Anybody who's spent a while being a student and a teacher has some sense of that. It's not uncommon for even to put ourselves in a situation of, I would like to learn, and yet there's big resistance to learning. The defensive insecurity of, don't tell me, don't tell me. And how old is the self that thinks and feels that? Don't tell me. I know. There's a lot of lip service to how essential beginner's mind is, but it seems to demand diligence and lots of help to really be sustained. or a teaching, whether that's through words or through whatever life brings down the pipe for us. Right? We take this view as practitioners that everything that's happening is teaching. With that desire to wake up, 
everything that happens is a mirror for the mind. Whatever life brings down the pipe, the crust of been there, done that, seen what there is to be seen, sometimes is so thick, or it's been there for so long, we don't see it for what it is. Or maybe we don't recognize it when it's there, and in hindsight, we can see, oh, well, I was really closed off. So this was mostly, honestly, a lament on my own crustiness. <laughs> Though it might be a helpful reflection for all of us as we continue this practice of being students of the moment. Being students of the moment. We can temporarily close the door, put ourselves in stasis. At least it seems that way. So back to the four thoughts. The four thoughts that turn the mind, sometimes called the four thoughts that turn the mind to dharma or turn the mind away from samsara. The four thoughts are uh, one, impermanence and death. Two, karma. Action and result. Three, samsara. I'll get more into what that might mean. And number four, precious human birth. Here are some uh, classic verses uh, about the four thoughts. I think these come from commentaries on the four thoughts. This existence of ours is as transient as autumn clouds. To watch the birth and death of beings is like looking at the movement of a dance. A lifetime is like a flash of lightning in the sky, rushing by like a torrent down a steep mountain. When her time has come, even a queen has to die, and neither her friends nor her wealth can follow her. So for us, wherever we stay, wherever we go, our actions follow us like a shadow. And then um, about samsara, because of craving, attachment, and ignorance, men, gods, animals, hungry ghosts, and hell beings, and those are five out of the six realms. The other realm is the heavenly realm. Foolishly go round and round, like the turning of a potter's wheel. So one way these are worked with is as daily reflections. It's thought that in the human mind there is really strong resistance to seeing these and to really letting them penetrate. Strong resistance to accepting these and living in accord with them. But through repetitive contemplation, the truths they point to can begin to change the way we think and we see and we be. So you might consider integrating a ritual of reflection on them into your practice. So the first is impermanence and death. There are lots of... Um, Lots of synonyms for impermanence. Transiency, constant change, 
instability, coming apart, going away, no finalities. Impermanence, again, the beginner's mind is, is vital because it's something we see differently from different depths and clarities of mind. On one level, impermanence means stuff goes away. It all goes away. You can't keep anything. Everything amassed is given up, it's lost, or it's taken away. No exceptions. The Egyptians might be right. Put all the stuff in the tomb, you get it next time. I don't know. I wouldn't bet on it. Can't keep anything. So take that in. And we, we take that in and see how that impacts us. Can't keep mental stuff, memories, experiences, learnings. Can't keep spiritual stuff, states of mind, peak experiences. And of course, can't keep the physical stuff. The stuff of the body goes away. You hit mid-30s, 40s, and you start to realize, oh, it's true, the body begins to degrade. You don't quite have the vitality you used to have. The strength begins to leave. You need more rest, you heal slower. Stuff goes away. Feelings are shifty. Another meaning of impermanence. There's lots of parallels to this example, but take a road trip with someone and watch carefully how your feelings about them change as your moods change. <laughs> see some nods. Especially if there's a little stress in the road trip, especially if it doesn't go your way. It's kind of easy to be happy when Circumstances are positive, and we're getting what we want. But we really reveal to ourselves our practice when shit starts hitting the fan. So you take a road trip with someone and watch how carefully your feelings change about them as your moods change. As their moods change, their feelings towards you change. And as their feelings towards you change, your feelings towards them change. It's flowing back away, back and forth. And the feeling towards being on the trip change. The feelings about continuing the trip change. According to your mood, the feelings about what you saw and what you did change. It was amazing. And then you think about it in a different mood. And, mm, it was okay. It was stressful. You could say the mind is psychedelic because it's weaving of experience is profound. Watch the feelings about an object change. Think about the thing that has so much shine, so much luster. person, the thing, the experience, and 
eventually that thing loses its luster, it loses its shine, especially once we get it. That's why you want to get some more real quick so you can get back in that juice of anticipating the shiny. Sometimes a lusterless thing regains its shine, it comes back. Why does that happen? Think about relationships, whether romantic or not, you've been in, you've really stayed in for a while. You go through times where you're just not all that interested in that person. Bound to happen. Then you stay with it, and especially as a practitioner, you begin to see something fresh in them. Because the place you see from is refreshed. So impermanence means death. Death. Everyone throws this word around as if they know what it means. It appears that our storylines come to an end, our personal sagas. It appears that our bodies disintegrate and reintegrate into the larger field, even if you think of a corpse being put in the ground and how its elements dissolve or folded into the earth. The person we played on the world stage stops existing for the living. Hard to say whether that person exists for us. The person we played on the world stage stops existing for the living. The people and beings we love are no longer an immediate physical sensory experience we can have or are having. So death is the mysterious pass. There are many theories and doctrines about that mysterious pass. But generally speaking, the living have never died. So the body's disintegration is the great unknown. It's the source of so much dread, so much desire, so much curiosity, so much dogma, and so much wonder. Death is the mysterious pass. Now, reflection on death can put the investment in individuality and its triumphs and travails into perspective. It can lighten the sense of being someone who's going to hit that mysterious pass. And just take a moment and imagine your current problems, what you view as not going well or what might not go well that's coming down the pipe. Think about all those things you felt that way about 10 or 20 years ago and what, where all that worry and distress went. And think about all this drama of the self 10 years after your death, 100 years. Think of the, the ancientness of galaxies and your lifespan like a, a flicker of, of starlight 
And in that expanse, think of the size of the individual drama and stress. We can lighten the burden of being a self through putting it in perspective. We can see how brief, and we never can know how brief it's going to be, how brief our opportunity is to grow and to learn, how brief our opportunity may be to let go and to wake up. You could die with this grudge. I could go to my grave with these unresolved fears. So we reflect on death and impermanence alongside teachings, alongside teachings that living and dying, comings and goings, meeting and parting, is not the only way to see and experience life. That's not the whole picture. It's part of the gravity of religion is it says that's not the whole picture. But as Dharma practitioners, we want to know, we want to taste with our own bodies and hearts the whole picture. The deathless, the bornless. Kuan Ejo has been calling it luminosity, the Dhamma. We have to dance with these skeletons. We have to get close to these things that we don't like to get close to because these are the gateway to seeing beyond death, beyond impermanence. It's through what passes that we see what's reliable. It's through the pain of loss that we find the energy to connect to the bigger picture. So not intimately reflecting on and reckoning with impermanence is like pretending one is not sick while running a fever. The anxiety about it is there. The body displays it. It's coped with in some manner, ignored through some strategy, some not looking, some lack of fully standing in truth. It is very hard to stand in truth. It is very hard to do this. It takes a particular courage to really look directly at these things and not just fall into despair. But someone could say it's harder to not stand in truth, to not face these things to be sick and live as if one is healthy. To whatever degree we do look, we reclaim the energy that goes into the hidden anxieties about impermanence. All the energy that goes into trying to hold together what can't be held together. It's a lot of energy. It's a lot of energy. We reclaim that energy and we're clarified. Perhaps we're more, more, more sober, more sober, and more grateful 
So impermanence can be seen through the self, and we can see it. It can be seen not through the self. The self and its desires for certainty sees impermanence one way, and another way to see it is it's an ordinary, magnificent dance of energies. Elements shaping and unshaping. And there's a beauty and a perfection and an easiness of the flow. You can... All the hard stuff goes away, the good stuff too. Yet the coming and going is itself good. Is itself good. So the second of the four thoughts that turn the mind is karma. I think the literal translation of the word kama, that's the Pali, is action. Action. And it implies action and the results of action. Sometimes we say causes and effects. But we don't think about it as if these are two different things because Effects are causes. Effects are themselves effects. The universe is like an endless work of art that everyone is shaping and being shaped by. Dreaming and being dreamed by. We make karma with mind, speech, and body. What does that mean? could say actions of mind, speech, and body all have consequences. All have consequences. Especially in the absence of awareness, they have consequences. We are continually painting particular strokes, continually contributing to particular pictures. And those strokes and pictures influence other strokes and pictures. It's like we're born into an immense responsibility that is not optional. There's no getting out of this law of the universe, that what we're doing with our minds is having an effect. And we're always doing something with our minds. So life is not trivial. In that sense, it's not trivial. What we do with mind, speech, and body is a deep force upon what we will be, what we will experience, a deep force on what those nearest our field of influence will be, what they will experience. What we are doing with mind or in the absence of awareness, how mind is doing us is a deep force on how we are experiencing, upon what we are experiencing. A conceptual toehold on what the teachings of emptiness mean is there is no thing that's just out there existing independent of your perceiving it. 
There are no what's just out there. Think of a person, think of a place, think of a job. It's not just like that. It's interactive with your mind. Where we see and experience from, whichever beliefs, feelings, and attitudes are present, shape what we see and experience. And we only have experience. It's not like there's something behind that that's real. So just how true this is, is at the heart of Zen practice. Someone said, we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. People and places, etc. So life is not trivial. And you're sitting here and being with the mind and being with the echoes of karma is not trivial. Because that is going to bring forth, that manifests, that shapes collectively, individually, with what's inside and outside, what we think and see and how we see and be is so intimate. And this can be really empowering. There's another way to look at life not being trivial. We have profound influence in our sphere. What is meant by karma is an intricate subject. It's full of nuance. It's a lifetime study. I probably don't understand it. The Buddha, who said that all obscurations of knowledge just fell away, there's no more limit on what could be perceived, past, present, or future, said that it's basically impossible to understand the intricacies of karma. So it's not so much about why does something happen. Everything causes everything. Why something happens won't help us, but how it's happening. How it's happening. And for that, we look to our minds. So what is relevant within this vessel of focused practice? We're empowering ourselves by recognizing mind's power. The shoulder ache and the deciding this isn't for me is not a given. That's a karmic relationship to what's arising. The person's sound of their breathing and your irritation is not a given. That's a karmic response to... It's just a sound. Thoughts arising in sitting are the result of previous thoughts, yours or someone else's. The emotions arising in sitting are the result of previous thoughts, yours or someone else's. The self and its suffering is the result of previous thoughts, yours or someone else's. So with faith in karma as a truth we have to negotiate. We nourish and we take generative actions. In session, a generative action, a skillful action is interrupting the critic. 
it's not helpful. You've heard it before. The result of the critic is rarely positive. A skillful action is diligence in coming back to now. That gathers power. That becomes a habit. That habit really serves us. A skillful action is empathy for all beings. You can replace the grudge, the resentment, the irritation with something useful, something that takes that energy and makes it helpful. So skillful actions cultivate, they seed a mind to have the conditions to go beyond actions. We create conditions in our own minds by being skillful artists to recognize freedom from conditions. When you're caught up in the moment, weaving a web of struggle or thoughts of doubt, let the principle, let your realization of karma give you your confidence to still do your best. To still do your best, knowing that it will have a result. Because you see that what you have thought and what you have previously done had a result. This will too. Eventually, an unstuck moment of you arising, the result of previous effort. Dogen Zenji says, moment by moment, a body and mind appear and disappear with no abiding. So he's talking about impermanence at a profound level. A body and mind appear and disappear with no abiding, yet the effects of practice ripen and mature. You see how impermanence and what we're calling karma are not two things. The third truth is the defects, excuse me, the third um, turning of the mind is the defects of samsara. And samsara means cyclic existence, going round and round, but not like in a fun way or only partially fun, only a little bit fun, the going round and around. <laughs> Apparently, from the perspective of an enlightened person, the going round and around is pretty much terrible the whole time. We just don't know it yet. The defects of samsara, you're asked to look at the ordinary way of going about living and seeing that it's not the most intelligent way to do things. We can put too much on life. can put too much on life. I don't know about you, but I put too much on life. Sometimes I expect a person, a meal, a meditation period, or whatever, to somehow be glorious, to somehow fill me with utter satisfaction until my day's end. <laughs> Isn't that how a lot of people think about marriage? <laughs> we put too much on life. We can expect something very unreasonable from the universe. It's basic essence that we can all observe 
And we can observe in profound detail in our own bodies and minds in this setting is that the universe is dreamlike. It's a river-like transformation. There's no real solidity. It's like the sky. How long is a moment? But life is made of that. So we know to some degree its essence is dreamlike, a river flow transformation, and we expect it to satiate us. We put our hopes on it to fulfill us, to remain as we like it. And at our silliest, we expect it to be always pleasurable. Like when we get sick or when we have pain or things go wrong, we kind of feel betrayed like we got on God's bad side. We want it to hit the spot, but the spot doesn't stand still. And there may not even be a spot. Also, we want to do what we want without consequence. We want that scot-free zone. We want that consequence-free zone. We want to do what we want to do without any consequence. Now, of course, more and more studies are showing that we have a very limited capacity as human beings to really see beyond very immediate future. That's the definition of the animal realm is you can't see beyond the immediate future, so you're all teeth, claws, and sex. You don't have the ability. You don't have the mind to do anything more than that. We want to do what we want to do without consequence as if we weren't an integral part of the dream. So samsara is a kaleidoscope of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, being loved and being ignored, getting it just right and failing to do so. It just is that way. It just is that way. But this is not some kind of dogmatic assertion that life sucks. When impermanence isn't recognized as freedom in disguise, the kaleidoscope is stressful. It's disappointing. That's one of, like, I think, the, the worst emotions to bear as a human being is disappointment. Like that really profound disappointment. We put our hopes in something and it bottoms out. And we don't recognize the dreamlike flow as what it is, then this kaleidoscope is disturbing. Everything slips through our hands. We don't even want to think about this stuff. We don't even want to think about it. So the kaleidoscope is the kaleidoscope. Energy moves. Things can't last. It's a ridiculous desire. It'd be nice if they lasted a little longer. 
you could imagine that could be possible in an alternate reality. I don't know, like the aftertaste is there for a few minutes, or like that good feeling after you do whatever you did is there for a few more minutes. It could be different, but it doesn't, it doesn't turn out to be that way. So the teaching is samsara is defective. If it's defective, if it's a source of distress, it's because of how we are practicing it, of how we are seeing it, how we're relating to the show. It's easy to pay lip service to accepting things as they are. But when we lose health or loved ones or have to face hunger or real fear, it's not so simple. It's not so simple to accept things as they are, and suffering people often cause others to suffer. And so for equanimity with the kaleidoscope, for that to be accessible when things get real, most of us will have to train. Of course, there are different ways of training. It doesn't have to look like this, but some wise orientation to life, or when things don't go our way, we really just crumble. We lose that equanimity. I think it was Kierkegaard. I often misquote these German philosophers. I apologize. I don't know if it matters. I'm not even sure he's German. That's a real confession. <laughs> No, he's Dutch or Danish. Thank you. Sorry, Kierkegaard. I think it was Kierkegaard who said something like, I don't know why we are here, but I'm pretty sure it's not to have a good time. <laughs> I really hate that. And I think he's wrong. I think to have a good time, we need to know what I is. We need to know what here is. And then we can have a good time, maybe not in the sense that we ordinarily look at it. Not knowing what I is and what this I is up to is samsara. Longchenpa said, samsara is the absence of awareness. Samsara, in contrast to the peace that is possible for us, the way we could move through life, the way we could see life, is a defective way to move in the world. The last of the four thoughts is precious human birth. I don't think what makes life precious is just its fragility and its brief duration. I think what makes it precious is the things that are possible in that brief duration, the beautiful things that are possible in that brief duration. It seems that the only creatures who are aware that they are aware are humans. 
cursing gift of, of self-consciousness. That could be wrong. It seems to be a good bet that we're the only creatures who are aware that we are aware. And we're not even fully aware that we're aware, but we're at least a little bit aware that we're aware. But self-aware beings can not only just follow nature's course or go with the flow, we can lead ourselves and others, we can envision towards expansive mind and heart. We can transcend tribalism and speciesism, which only a human mind can do. Although I just thought of these Instagram videos where you see like a cat and a dolphin like playing and so. Take it with a grain of salt. We can be a vehicle for the four divine abidings. Profound love, profound compassion, deep equanimity. Traditional Buddhist thinking is that the human being is where, at least for now, fullest awakening can occur. That, that this, we need this. We need what you've got. What you've got is precious because that's what you need to do spiritual work and to take it to its fulfillment. And it's not a given that you get one of these. Fullest awakening can occur in the human body, mind. That the human mind has the capacity for a fullness of the light. Of course, everything is on our team. A lot of what we're saying when we're saying all beings, all beings, may all beings, all beings, all beings. We say it a lot, all beings. A lot of what we're saying when we say all beings is that everything is on our team. Everything is an ally. There's no separation. That's one of the ways the mind is turned through practice. This breeze is an intimate teaching. And the light on the floor awakens us. And the microchips and the circuit boards realize Buddha nature, and so we do. Everything is holding up a mirror. And yet, human beings are vessels for the, for the depth and the extent of the light. And we have the ability to clarify it. We are self-aware and we can come to clarify what it is to be self-aware. That means we have to clarify me and I. Being aware that we are aware, grasping mind often takes this awareness as something it possesses and calls it me and calls it I, calls it my life, my awareness. Grasping feels I am aware. And then that grasping blocks the light. And yet awareness can recognize how grasping takes it to be a self. As we sit in awareness, we free it of I and am even free it of aware, we free it of self. 
So putting aside whether plants and animals have or don't have need for spiritual practice or awakening, we can look at the confusion of people, our own confusion, and come to the conclusion that we do. At least I can say, I do. I need this. I need to do this. This self-awareness often leads me into suffering. And to be able to do spiritual practice for all the conditions to be present, health and intelligence, safety, interest, leisure time, a place to practice, companions, the teachings, this is a very rare confluence. And it's one that may pass out of our reach. There is definitely a limited span of time, whether you get to do this for the next 60 years or the next 10, there is definitely a limited span that we have to do this. So to be human with the potential of the human mind and to have all the conditions holding, at least for now, to allow us to practice with that human mind is precious. It will be too late to practice Dharma if war breaks out. It's going to be really hard to go deep into practice if you get hit with a profound sickness. But now you're healthy enough. May it be so that you're healthy enough for a long time. Now we can do this. There may be a path to end suffering and not everyone has the opportunity to walk it. And yet our walking keeps it open, extends it further into the human realm. Our walking, doing this practice, sets an example. It displays an option for what to do about samsara. And on a related note, a long time ago, Chosen thought, well, the military goes to all these college career fairs. We should go too to present another option, another way to respond. Not that there's anything wrong with the military. But we, in doing this, make the path available to others. We display the potential to respond to the human mind in a very particular and what seems to be a very useful way. So our clarifying this awareness and living the path is precious for others too. It can't really be self-centered for long. And if the teachings of the past masters are true, then our realization, our awakening, our insights, they serve and they liberate beyond what we see as our lifespan. Maybe you don't go from on to off. Maybe nobody goes from on to off. What if that's true? A little bit of commentary on uh, Master Hongzhir. Chan Master Hongzhir is kind of like a Mozart of the Dharma. 
He's really a badass. He's like a high-level mystic. These teachings are deep. These teachings are really profound. And so when we study these, it's kind of like we're studying with a master where we're hearing the deep potential of practice. This is from a section called Positive and Appropriate Activity. Expansive and inherently spiritual, refined and inherently bright, awakened mind can permeate universally without grasping the merits of its illumination. It can apprehend without being bound by discursive thinking. Expansive and inherently spiritual, refined and inherently bright. This is our North Star. This is our North Star. This awakened mind. We bring it closer by unbinding from discursive thinking. We bring it closer. We make it intimate. Earlier I talked about the extreme of trying to forcefully stop thoughts and hold a thoughtless mind. And yet even some of these extremes have a grain of, a grain of merit. Do incline to discursive thinking settling down to nothing. Do incline in that way, but through relinquishment and deep relaxation and surrender. Do release the compulsion to need to label, to categorize, to understand, and to know. Feel how the mind is like thirsty for understanding, thirsty for mapping out everything that's going on. And don't feed that thirst. Be intimate experience prior to the ledge of the wedge of language. Be intimate experience. Even a nano moment of that and we're briefly kissed by the Dharma and we recognize something. You don't grasp and try to hold that moment of non-thought. Don't grasp and hold that moment of non-thought. If it has extent, it's from relaxing into non-grasping. It's from coursing in that mode of having let go. Hungzhir continues, emerging from manifestations of existence and non-existence, surpassing the emotions of deliberation and discussion, merely interact positively without dependence on others. We're challenged not to make mental souvenirs out of past experience. The ego wants something to show. It co-ops its interpretation of its own absence. We're challenged not to carry around the fossils of experiences that we had prior. They get in the way. They get in the way. On the one hand, we can recognize and appreciate whatever fruits the practice bears. And it does bear fruit. Not the least of which is this capacity for sincerity and dignity that it takes to stay the course. 
So on one hand, we should recognize the fruits the practice bears. On the other hand, through not letting go of past experience, we lose beginner's mind, and that's a big loss. We lose beginner's mind and we lose everything. We settle into what I know, what I experienced, and the light gets blocked again. So we see through self and we let go of notions of what remains and we move through the world more freely. We begin to taste what's called in Zen, nothing extra. Nothing extra. The ability to meet people and situations with less friction, less sticking to our preferences, less making us stink, less separation. And we do that, and for ourselves, the value and authenticity of our experience on the cushion is, is testified to. It's brought alive in our everyday life by how we move through the day. About this, Hongzhir says, all Buddhas, all ancestors, all leaves and all flowers relate in this manner. When responding, they do not grasp at forms. Where illuminating, they do not attach to conditions. Thus, they can stay wide open and unhampered. So practicing the path is not only the rigor of this upright sitting, Thread through your hours the practice of letting go. Countless opportunities to make that a habit, to make that reflexive. Countless opportunities. Thread through the practice of letting go. The flip side of that is giving the sacred sense of life a chance to manifest. Take instructions from non-humans. Hear the Buddha voices of engines and laughter and breezes. See the suchness of sunflower and sky. Meeting activities with a non-stick mind, a heart that doesn't hold to judgments. The benefit of this is the practice of this. benefit of this is the practice of this. Of course, it has other effects. A heart that doesn't hold to judgments of yourself or others. Feel the particular joy of really doing wholehearted practice. There's a cultivator's joy. There's a yogi's pleasure. Not because the heavens are parting, but because of really engaging with sincerity. There's something that is satisfied, deeply satisfied by doing that. So when your spirits flag, don't worry, but don't indulge. Don't indulge it. Mind states are dreamlike. If it's helpful, reflect on the four thoughts. Especially if there's a kind of scenario of, well, this won't work, so I can always be happy doing X, Y, Z. Connect to the four thoughts. Remember that it cannot work, or it cannot work the way we think it will. And have 
confidence that with careful practice, in time, there will be fruition. There will be fruition. Have confidence in the arithmetic of it. Eventually, because the mind is shapeable, it reshapes. So please uh, take good care of your practice.